again, and thanks for joining us in another conversation with Chess Leadership. I'm here with uh, John Stutter. John, thanks for meeting with us today. David, thanks for having um, me. Um, so I'd like to start just by having you tell the group a little bit about uh, who you are and, and maybe how you got here, and then we'll talk a little bit about your chest role. Uh, John Stuttered. I'm a private practice pulmonologist in Jackson, Mississippi, pulmonary critical care. We have Jackson Pulmonary Associates, ooh, close to 100 employees now, wow. two major community hospital, but other hospitals in the uh, greater metropolitan area of Jackson. I've uh, been in uh, private practice of pulmonary medicine for 41 years. Uh, Jackson is my hometown. I trained at the Mayo Clinic, uh, went home in 1981 from Mayo and raised my family and have been there and practicing pulmonary critical care ever since. Um, and can you speak, and it's hard to speak briefly because you've done a lot of things, but can you speak somewhat abbreviatedly, perhaps, about the roles that you've had at, at the American College of Chest Physicians. I had great privilege uh, about 10 or 15 years ago of getting involved with our foundation, eventually served in its leadership, and then that moved into having an opportunity to be involved in uh, the leadership of the college, which I was for a number of years. Uh, now I'm actually privileged, again, to be serving in a uh, role as a consultant to uh, the staff in the space of policy and advocacy. And I've been playing that role since January of 2020, just before COVID. Um, so in the interest of full disclosure to the audience, I've known John a long time. I had the privilege of serving as Dr. Studdard's program chair when I you know. were a chess president back in 2018. So I had a good time. Hopefully I, hopefully I served the role well. Beautifully. Uh, but it's not going to preclude me from asking the hard questions today, uh, since as you pointed out, you're now staff. Uh, so I can, I can ask the hard questions. Um, so well, that's what staff likes you to think, anyway. <laughs> it doesn't mean you have to answer the hard questions, but I intend to ask them. Again, the idea being to help our membership get sure. a little bit better of a sense of how they may choose yeah. to get more involved in how our organization works. There, so there are two spaces I want to dig into. Um, uh, advocacy you mentioned, but I actually want to back burner that for a minute. Yeah. You are an incredible, uh, you've done incredible things at Chess, but unlike many of the folks who have served both as uh, foundation presidents and as college presidents, you do not primarily serve the role as an academic physician. You have some affiliations and you certainly do some teaching, but as you mentioned, you are, a, a, I don't know if you're the founding member, but certainly a partner at Jackson Pulmonary. A lot of our membership, probably the majority of our membership, is more in that phenotype than has a primary academic appointment. But I get the sense that there's a perception out there that people who don't have primary academic appointments are not the sort of leaders Chest is looking for. So it's sort of a two-pronged question. One, talk a little bit about your journey as somebody who is using the term you use, private practice, getting involved in Chest. And two, how would you counsel folks who are in that track if they want to get more involved in Chest? I think that's a great question. Um, I was very fortunate that when I, before going home, I did all my pulmonary and critical care at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Um, my mentors there were, um, most of the Mayo faculty were either ATS oriented or chest oriented. I was clinically uh, oriented and so I gravitated towards uh, those people at Mayo who were uh, chest affiliated such as uh, probably my main mentor and hero is Dr. Ed Rosenau who was president of CHEST. Uh, Udaya Prakash was a young faculty member when I was in training. Also served as uh, editor of CHEST. I wrote a paper with a guy named Matt Diverty who had been president of CHEST back uh, uh, years before even Rosenau. 
So it was natural for me to choose CHEST as my professional organization, and particularly as a clinician, because I think CHEST has always had a great reputation for great clinical education. So it's a natural place to go for a meeting, and it was a great place for me to go see my mentors from the Mayo and teachers from the Mayo Clinic. Uh, it also gave me an opportunity pretty early on in my career. I was probably in my, uh, wow, mid-30s and got involved uh, because of uh, a Mayo uh, mentor, a guy named Doug Gracie, who at that time was a one-man government affairs committee for the American College of Chess Physicians. Uh, and I, he encouraged me to get involved in that committee, um, and which I did, and was given that opportunity. And so I came up on the advocacy side, actually, in the late 80s and 90s, with a real passion about tobacco control, but through the government affairs side of CHEST and actually ended up chairing that committee. Uh, you know what was unique, particularly back 30 and 40 years ago, and I think uh, was the impediment to private practice folks getting involved other than going and learning and getting um, continuing education from uh, uh, meetings like CHEST and educational offerings like CHEST provided uh, that were in incomparable, nobody touched uh, chest meetings for educational content that was clinical, that was pertinent for private practice guys, but was to take time away from your practice right. was a, a big issue. It was an economic issue. Probably still is for many people out there. Uh, yeah, but you know, I, I think the academic and the uh, private world have come close together there because it's probably more of a problem now for academicians than it was back in the 70s, 80s, and maybe early 90s. Sure. But for us to be able to even consider participation in leadership, you were taking time away from, because usually you're younger in your career, you're either taking time away from your responsibility in your family or from your practice, and you're still paying overhead even if you're in a meeting. So it was a practical uh, hurdle. Um, you know, David and I were different in that I'm a little bit older than you. Uh, you're, re you're relatively young to be at such an uh, awesome position of being the next president of CHEST. I was a little bit old when I got involved in leadership at CHEST. Uh, I was at a point in my career where my children were raised and they were gone and self-sufficient. Uh, and I came through the foundation and then through the CHEST leadership group uh, at a point where I could uh, justify and negotiate with my group being away from my practice, quite honestly. So that's kind of my tract, and it was unique in that I had some early opportunities, but I would suggest to other young people in private practice, David, that they, those opportunities are there. If you don't have a relationship with somebody in the group or the institution that you practice in who's involved either as an educator or in the leadership of an organization like CHEST, you do have people that you trained with. Uh, and uh, you have mentors there, I'm sure, like I did, uh, who you can uh, lean on and continuing to draw from as far as getting involved. Um, it's by, been by far the most meaningful experience of my professional career has been my involvement in CHEST. I've gotten more than I've given uh, other than my training at Mayo, which was an incredible five years of my life. Uh, but the last 10 or 15 years of being involved here have been, uh, I, I, I would highly recommend it. So I want to follow up on, on a piece that I think is really important, not only because I'm in a position potentially to, to, to 
encourage it, but also because I actually don't think it's a new agenda. So we've talked about diversity. <laughs> and we it. generally refer to diversity in the context of uh, folks who are traditionally underrepresented in medicine. Mm. But one of the things, and I knew you and I have spoken about this in the diversity space, is we don't want just academic physicians doing the teaching and providing the leadership of chess because there are diversities of thought. That's a phrase you used many times yeah. and it stuck with me, that you bring a sensibility to your decision making and people like you in, in ways that I can't. And I, I would point out to people who are relatively junior, agreed if they have the bandwidth and can take the time away from their practice and families, I actually think there are some incredible opportunities for folks outside of academics to get involved because that's kind of what we're looking for. We're desperately in need of that phenotype, that mentality to give us some normalization to be more representative of what our membership looks like. Yeah, I think some of the greatest value that we've had in leadership at Chess on the board level has been from people from the community private side who have a different perspective on problem solving. Um, and it might be my perspective of academics, but I think sometimes in the academic setting, you have a lot of people making a lot of decisions for you that we don't have, particularly in the traditional private practice model, which is, I realize is getting to be less and less, uh, but that uh, problem solving, pragmatic approach embellishes and gives a different perspective. Plus, we have a better handle on what kind of education we need. Uh, in a sense, what we think we need. And as you sort of rose up through the ranks, did you ever feel like your opinion was less valued as a result of your career path at Chest? I never got that sense at Chest, not uh, corporately. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm sure there were individuals where at times I felt like perhaps. Um, but David, you know, I always kind of like when people underestimate. <laughs> <laughs> I've made a career. You might out of want that. to cut that. Yeah, but. No, I think that's actually that's very poignant. I think that's relevant. I, let me spin to a, a related topic, which I know is near and dear to your heart, and it's a topic that is relatively new to me. And I feel like because it's not an area with which I'm familiar, it's probably not an area with which most of our membership is familiar. And this is the advocacy space. So um, I've served, had the pleasure of serving with you on the on the on the uh, policy and advocacy committee for the last year or so. Um, I know you have a longitudinal relationship with this space and, and really have been a lead on it. I know a lot of our junior members would like to change the world, right? I mean, we all want to change the world. I think this upcoming generation is even more interested in changing the world than we were at that age. And they struggle with trying to figure out how do they operationalize that vision. Can you speak a little bit, so again, now it's a two-parter, your history, how'd you get into this space? What is Chess doing in this space? And how can potentially junior, relatively junior members of CHEST get involved if they'd like to know more about what they can do to help with advocacy for CHEST? Three-part question. All right, I don't count well. <laughs> uh, part one, how did I get involved? I spoke to a little bit earlier. Uh, my initial involvement in a leadership position was in policy and advocacy when CHEST um, was incredibly involved in uh, the tobacco wars that led to the Attorney General's Master Settlement in the mid-1990s. CHEST was one of the leading uh, uh, public health groups in something called the ENACT Coalition with American Heart, American, not American Lung, um, uh, American Heart Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids, an incredible group of people. The only, CHESS was the only group with a representative at the negotiations with the attorneys for the industry with the attorney generals. So CHESS was real involved in that space. So, so I had some advocacy, some advocacy background. 
Um, a few years ago, our CEO, Bob Masakio, came to me and felt like we'd created a gap for chest in the space of advocacy. And remember, advocacy is much bigger than lobbying. Lobbying is a word, and some people want to uh, feel like they both uh, represent the same thing. Advocacy has a lot of tools. Lobbying is only one tool. Education is a huge tool in advocacy, whether you're, advoca uh, whether you're educating membership, leadership, uh, uh, lawmakers, uh, payors like CMS. So CHEST is an education organization. That's our long suit and expertise, and there's no reason we can't educate in advocacy. So we came back to the table proactively of advocacy at CHEST a few years ago. Um, and I think the third part of the question was how to get involved. It, and as you referenced, it is an area that an individual can make a difference. But a vehicle by, by like CHESS gives that individual an opportunity to potentially impact it. Oh, uh, you know, we have five policy priorities. Yes, yeah, so let's talk about. You want so, me to go in that? Yeah, if, maybe just you know a, a brief 10, yeah. 15 second foray into each. So, what are we currently doing in the advocacy space? We have a policy and advocacy committee, and in that space, we have right now five policy priorities. Which I would suggest, right now, we have pop five policy priorities. Those can change, can go away. Uh, something could happen tomorrow, like a, a, a national health emergency that might change some uh, priorities. But um, first of all, it's in the space of uh, tobacco and vaping. Uh, our leadership in that group, we have a work group mechanism, is led by Frank Leone from Penn, who is a has probably an international reputation in uh, nicotine addiction and smoking cessation, and is a great guy and has a really diverse, great work group that he's putting together to try to look at unique, innovative approaches to that problem, not just doing what everybody else has always done. Mm -hmm. So tobacco and vaping, non-invasive ventilation. Uh, that group is just, uh, through CHESS leadership, has hosted um, a uh, technical expert panel, um, have written and published a paper in that space, and have just submitted a national coverage determination reconsideration in the space of non-invasive ventilation. So basically help get, but not for NCD, you and I know that term, but for folks who may not, it basically just try to get coverage for people right. for whom the service is not to currently To get the right covered. patient, the right box at the right time in non-invasive ventilation. Uh, oxygen uh, access. Uh, CHEST has played a leadership role in the last year of having gotten for the first time in 15 or 20 years a new national coverage determination from CMS in the home use of oxygen, which is it's not perfect, but nothing in advocacy ever is perfect, but it's dramatically better than what we had for our patients, and particularly for providers who are uh, dealing with patient problems with patient access. Look, every day in my clinical life, uh, I have oxygen access issues that we're having to help patients with. Um, uh, pulmonary rehab. Um, incredibly, as most of the audience might know with pulmonary rehab, it's uh, under-reimbursed. Uh, therefore, we're look in Jackson, Mississippi, a uh, capital city. Uh, we have no pulmonary rehab program in Jackson, That's and we're amazing. either in practice for us in private practice or at the university, because people the financial model wouldn't work based on current reimbursement. So we're always traditionally worked on reimbursement in that space with very little success. But we're also looking at innovative ways to, to deliver pulmonary rehabilitation, not the traditional. Un hard to get reimbursed uh, ways to improve patient access, but also innovative utilization of uh, pulmonary rehab. Um, and I, I think I touched on all five, maybe not. So 
These are issues, though, given that most folks out of academics see more patients in a given week than folks in academics, and because the majority of issues that you've mentioned are as prevalent as they are, these are issues that probably more frequently affect people in your line of work than people in my line of work. You just do more clinic. Yep. You see more. Yep. So for folks out there who struggle with these issues, whose staff struggle with these issues, advocacy is actually a natural fit. It's a way to vent some of that frustration and energy that, so if somebody, a lot of folks say, well, how do I, how, I don't even know how to get involved. I'm interested, these are important issues to me, they're important issues to my patients, I don't even know where to begin. How would you counsel them to potentially get involved in this space? Two points, one, to somewhat of an earlier point, I would suggest that any patient, any physician who takes care of patients should be by definition a patient advocate. So we should all, if we chose this profession, we should be advocates of our patients. As far as the how to get involved right now, uh, I think it's, we, I, I would suggest that you watch very closely over the next year as we develop a um, new newsletter in um, the advocacy space. I think it's gonna be called Chest Advocates. Um, I think you're gonna see more of a web presence, so we'll tell our, do a better job of telling our story. Uh, you should look at who are the chairs of these different work groups. And if you, one particularly resonates with you, uh, reach out to the chair of the work group, reach out to the chair, vice chair of the committee, reach out to me. Uh, just send me an email, send Shulman an email and he, he can send it to us. True. But if you're interested, let us know and um, uh, we will do everything we can to help you uh, get involved. You don't need expertise in the advocacy. You have to have enthusiasm, a little bit of time, because that's I mean, the hardest thing to, of course, come by, but one of the most important things. But we will work, I think, with individuals who are interested in these spaces to help give them. We, we need manpower yep. and woman power. I mean, it's not, a, it's not a gender thing, but we need individuals who are enthusiastic, interested, passionate, as you were, which I think is part of the reason that you have been as accomplished as you have been. It's just you, you, you yeah, once you find the topic you like, you just do it. Um, it's an area that's easy to get yeah. passionate about. Yeah. So thanks, first of all, for all of that. I, I think that's incredibly helpful. Uh, just getting to know you a little bit more. Again, I've had the privilege, but many of them don't know. But I'm going to ask some questions. Let's start in the area of music. So what is the song that when it comes on the radio, Ooh. you may not break out. You probably have a wonderful voice. I've not heard you sing. I'm not going to ask you to sing today. But what's the song that might pop up on the radio? He's like, I'm going to take, either I'm going to sing along because I'm on my own, or I'm going to be singing in my head because I really love this song. What's that song for you? You know, I'm older. So our you perspectives keep saying that. Like, no, that I am. I'm a hell of a lot older, uh, but I also have grandchildren, and you know, old f progressive commercials would tell you we these are the <laughs> kinds of things we talk about. But it's probably going to be a children's song. Really, like, wheels on the bus kind uh, of thing. Uh, Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. Oh, from Mary Poppins, sure. Uh, no shame in that. Because and you've probably heard that a lot of times. And I have sung it a lot with my grandchildren. What is the uh, movie? that when you're flipping around the channels on a Sunday, maybe between the games, and, and the movie comes up on TV, you're like, I know I've seen this, but I have to watch it, because this movie just, it, it sings to me, I'm gonna watch it for 15, 20 minutes. What's that movie for you? Um, Shawshank. That's a great choice. Yeah. I would watch that. Uh, it's a long one, too. It's not a short movie. Well, you said 15 minutes. Well, but you could watch longer. I mean, you could easily get drawn into that movie. It's a great, what phrase do people say that when they say it, it just rubs you the wrong way? You're like that, either it's not English or it's, it just, it sticks in your head and you wish you could correct them every time you say it, they say it. I don't know about the English, but it is what it is. Oh, that, that, I'm really worn out with that. Been a pleasure. Thanks it, it for joining us today. It is what it is, Shulman. Thanks for just joining us with another conversation with leadership. Thank you, Dave. See you next time.